Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Another week has come and gone, and here we are. Thank you for joining me another episode of the podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. If you like my book, The Carnivore Code, www.thecarnivorecodebook.com, please leave it a review on Amazon. Important news flash about The Carnivore Code, the book. This is the last week to get the first edition, which will soon be the collector's edition, which will soon be the original, self-published, very special to my heart edition of the Carnivore Code. This is the last week to get it on Amazon. On May 31st, I will take it off Amazon. And on June the 1st, the pre-orders for the HMH, the Houghton Mifflin, Big Five, New York, Big Time, published edition of the book will be available through June and July. The formal release for the second edition of the Carnivore Code is August the 4th. That book will have a new cover, which I will reveal very soon. I'm super stoked about it. I'm super excited to be partnering with HMH to get much broader distribution for this book, to reach more people, to affect more lives positively, to challenge more of the mainstream narrative, which we all know is completely false and is hurting a lot of people. So that is a very huge win for me. I'm super excited about that. The second edition will have an index. They're both amazing. Uh, Get the first edition this week if you want it. If you want to read my book this summer in June or July, you better get it this week because it's only going to be available for pre-order in June or July for the second edition. Okay. Another super exciting thing to announce every Sunday at 2 p.m. Pacific, I'll soon be in Texas, but I'm still saying it's 2 p.m. Pacific. I will do a live on Instagram, a Q&A that is live on Instagram. If you want to hang out with me live and ask me questions, come to the Q&A live on Instagram every Sunday at 2 p.m. with Carnivore MD. All right, that's what we got. This week's podcast episode is super fun. Mark Bell really needs no introduction. He uh, is an incredible individual and spoke out regarding his opinions with regard to coronavirus at the beginning of this pandemic and lost 12,000 followers on Instagram because he was speaking his truth. And I think a lot of the things that he and I talk about in this podcast have ended up to look pretty darn true. Uh, Lockdowns don't really benefit that many people. Economic implications of lockdowns are profound. Fundamentally, we need to be metabolically healthy to improve our resistance against this virus. We really can't hide from these viruses. Mark's a great guy. He's not a scientist. He doesn't claim to be, but he's kind of sneaky smart. Uh, He's a pretty amazing guy. He's a really genuine guy, and he has some amazing opinions about all this. He's standing outside in the sun, so I took this opportunity to also talk a lot. This is the most in-depth podcast I've done with regard to sunlight and vitamin D. If you have questions about those and our risk with regard to coronavirus or your risk in general of skin cancer, why we've been misled there as well, you will really enjoy this podcast. If you're listening on iTunes and you want to see the slides, they will all be on YouTube as always. And I will make snippets, which I will repost to Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, YouTube, et cetera. So check me out all those places. If you want all the details from this podcast, enjoy this one. You guys, Mark is a great guy. The first episode of this podcast 
was with Mark and Chris Bell. If you want to go back to the original Fundamental Health podcast, episode number one, Mark and Chris Bell. Now we're on episode 65. Who knows? It's been over a year. And Mark Bell is back. Enjoy this one. Thank you also, as always, to my sponsors, White Oak Pastures. My goodness, you guys, I don't know if you saw, Joel Salatin from Polyface Farms was on Joe Rogan this week talking about regenerative agriculture. And just like Polyface in Virginia and what Joel is doing, Will Harris has really been a pioneer with White Oak Pastures in Georgia. They are, in my opinion, the mothership, and we are going to do White Oak Cella there in October. I will be announcing dates for that very soon. I believe it's going to be the first weekend in October, and I think we're just going to do it. I think it's time. Everybody's reopening, and I think people are going to come out in droves. So when we open White Oak Cella version 2.0, October 2020, get your tickets because it's going to sell out. White Oak, if you don't know, 150 years six generations in the family, 20 years doing regenerative farming. The soil is rich. It is full of organic matter. It sequesters carbon and it sequesters water. The grass is greener than almost anything I've ever seen in terms of grass in my life. The grass is not overgrazed, which means the cattle are healthier and that you and I and our families are nourished very deeply. White Oak is simply good people doing good things. And in the midst of this pandemic, they have been such an important contributor to getting us all good food in the right way. These are small ecosystems. These are small production cycles. These are small uh, economies of scale. This isn't a big meatpacking plant like Tyson or one of these other places. These are the places that are going to make agriculture, animal and plant agriculture sustainable. We should support them. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order. They're always grass-fed, grass-finished with the cattle. It's the cleanest stuff I've ever seen in my life. It's amazing. Like I said, the soil is so rich. You will eat this meat. You'll never want to go back. Whiteoakpastures.com. CarnivoreMD sent you. Use the code CarnivoreMD, 10% off. Give Sarah a call. Tell her how much you appreciate what they're doing. And come to White Oak Cella because I want to meet you there. It is going to be a celebration, especially after everything that we have all been through this year with coronavirus. It'll be so good to hug you all. And if you're scared of coronavirus, then maybe don't come or just we'll do the social distancing elbow bump. But I'm going to want to hug you for sure. White Oak Pastures. Also, podcast always sponsored by my friends at Ancestral Supplements, www.ancestralsupplements.com, putting back in what the modern world has left out. You guys know what the modern world has left out. Organ meats, sunlight, grounding, getting in nature, playing. We can only really encapsulate one of those into a pill, and that's what Ancestral Supplements is doing. They're taking grass-fed, grass-finished cow organs, and now some other amazing cool products from New Zealand and desiccating them, low temperature dehydrating them, preserving as many of the nutrients as possible, putting them into a convenient gelatin capsule so that you don't have to look or eat liver, real liver or pancreas or kidney or spleen. You can just put in a pill, which is fantastic because in my opinion, getting organ meats, however you can get them, is going to increase your nutrition and is honoring the total life cycle of life on this planet. And it's giving us unique nutrients that are very hard to get otherwise. Nose to tail is what I am so passionate, passionate, passionate. Did I mention I'm passionate about it? About. So check out ancestralsupplements.com. I have been digging the living collagen. They have two types of collagen. They have the 
uh, tracheal collagen and they have the living collagen. They're both amazing and are really unique formulations of collagen. They're not just the hydrolyzed collagen you find in the store. These are from the scapula and the trachea and parts of the organism where there appear to be more growth factors and more efficacy. It's more potent collagen in a pill. It's fantastic, really good stuff. I'm also digging the thymus, which is a huge immune organ. We know it contains signaling molecules, which are going to be valuable for our immune system. In fact, it contains things like LL37, other peptides people are taking now in general, thymus and alpha-1, all these things which people are taking as peptides separate from these organ meats but are actually in the organ meats. So check out the thymus and the collagen, maybe even the lung in the time of this respiratory virus. Those are great supplements from Ancestral. You can use the code SALADINOMD for 10% off your first order. On to the podcast, my friends. Listen afterwards for what is going on with me, as always. All right. All right. Mark Bell, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for coming on, brother. Yeah, nice shirt. <laughs> I know. For people that are watching on YouTube, you can see I got the Mark Bell slingshot, eat the steak shirt going on. If you guys haven't seen this one, if you're listening on iTunes, it's the man, red that shirt. cow's jacked. The jacked cow. And on the back, it says, I got no beef with vegan. This is, <laughs> this is the brainchild of my man, Mark Bell. So you were, you were this is actually a great um, full circle conversation because you and your brother were the first episode of my podcast. So anybody who wants to hear episode number one of Fundamental Health can go to my YouTube channel and hear Mark and Chris Bell talk to me just about a year ago. And this is one year later. And here you are, Mark Bell, back on the podcast. I love it. Every- all your fans need to know that uh, my brother and I are responsible for Paul Saladino. We invented, we created, and we uh, gave birth to Paul Saladino uh, for all you guys out there and girls to listen to. This is totally true. I have to agree with you, Mark. I couldn't agree with you more. The last time I saw Chris, it was a while ago when I saw him in person in LA, but he goes, we're part of the Saladino army. We got you back. <laughs> That's right. So, so Mark and Chris Bell created the Saladino army, and I'm eternally grateful for you guys. For that. But, you know, I, I think it's fun to have you on the podcast. We're going to probably have a wide ranging, casual conversation. A lot of the podcasts I do are fairly technical. I know we're going to throw out some science because I cannot get through a single podcast without doing a screen share of some data that I'm thinking about now. But I love that you and I can just have a casual conversation for people. You know, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm a doctor, and I'm not an immunologist, uh, but, and, you know, and, and you're just a Jack and Tan meathead millionaire. That's your own moniker. <laughs> and, right. And we can just talk about how we're thinking about this whole coronavirus and how things look on today, the beginning of May I, 2020. I think the first thing we should talk about is uh, somebody that we've mutually been attacked by. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think that would be a good, a good, place, to, uh, a good place to start. You know, like I, I started uh, posting some stuff about the coronavirus very early on. Um, it, and it just happened to be that I just... I happen to be in communication with, a, with a, I have a lot of friends that are like you. I got a lot of friends that are deep in the weeds when it comes to science. And they were like, hey, man, like a lot of this doesn't add up, you know, and, and they were explaining stuff to me. And I, as they were explaining stuff to me, I was uh, looking into and investigating some stuff. Now, I don't know how to read studies and things like that. I, I don't, I've never done that before in my life. I've never read a book in my life. So I, I, I'm pretty lost when it comes to a lot of that stuff. But as I started listening to more stuff, and as I started to dig into more stuff, I know how to research just like anybody else with, with Google, right? But as I started looking into more stuff and, and more stuff was coming from more credible people, 
I started to get frustrated. I was like, wow, like what is going on here? Like something doesn't seem to be right. There's, there's some sort of uh, the link together to uh, the coronavirus and its negative impact on society doesn't seem to be linking up with exactly what's happening. And if you're listening to the news, I just listened to a segment on the news just now and it talked about how bad coronavirus is hurting our economy. And even a statement like that is false. That is not a true statement. And people need to call bullshit on that. That statement is 100% false because it's the quarantine. It's yes. the demanded quarantine. The, it's the regulation. Now, I do understand that's caused by the coronavirus. And I do understand we want to take precaution. I do understand uh, people are very upset because a lot of people have died. I, I get it. I'm not, um, I am empathetic towards that. But so anyway, when I started to see some of this stuff come out and I started to recognize stuff as like, man, that doesn't vibe with me very good. I was like, I'm going to start to talk about this. I'm going to start to post about this. And then people got so upset and they were like, I cannot believe that you're using your platform for this. And I'm like, motherfucker, or sorry, I'll bleep that out. <laughs> mother, mother sucker. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I was very frustrated because I was like, it's my platform and I'm going to do with it as I please. I like to share content about getting strong. I like to share content about getting in shape. I like to share content about the, about the uh, carnivore diet. And so I don't care if it's keto or carnivore diet or what it is. If it doesn't vibe well with everyone, I'm not going to only make posts on, uh, about, you know, the things that uh, the audience is going to dictate. And that's when I started like a race to zero followers and a bunch of things like that. And then, um, you know, I was getting uh, a lot of hateful and a lot of uh, upset messages and from, uh, you know, somebody that has picked on you a lot, Lane Norton. Um, he, he came on my thing and he's like, you know, you're not a doctor, you're not this, you're not that. And it's like, okay, hold on a second, Paul, I realize that you're a doctor and we have a lot of friends that are doctors. However, when was it not okay to not question doctors? I mean, what do they tell you? Paul, you go to the doctor and they say, Hey man, you got a torn rotator cuff. What's the first thing somebody else suggests to you? Hey, you should get a second opinion, right? And so we, we always question doctors, and I think that we always have the right to. And I think when you look at the news and you listen to these guys, they're not really giving you the full story or they don't really know what's going on because when you're like, okay, uh, can you recontract the coronavirus? If somebody that gets the coronavirus, are they able to get it again? They're like, we're not sure. And like, okay, well, what if we opened everything up like Sweden has done or, or Georgia has done? Uh, what's the repercussions of that? Like, we don't know yet. So like these guys are just sitting on their hands and they're just going to be like waiting around for a vaccine, which a vaccine is going to give us the same exact thing as we're all trying to lean towards and push towards, which is herd immunity. It just does it in a different way. Yep. Um, and so anyway, as, as I was seeing that, I was just like, you know what, I'm going to start to talk about this. And I couldn't believe what a response it got and how mad and frustrated people were. And I'm like, when I talk about the stuff that you want me to talk about, you don't listen to it and you don't watch it and you don't care. Now I'm talking about something that you supposedly are really mad about, but there you are posting on it and there you are watching it and consuming more of my content than ever. I'm like, I am blown away. I don't know what's going on. 
Such a strange time. And I've been thinking about this so much recently with regard to the tribalism. And that's what I think it is. That for whatever reason, coronavirus has become a political issue in addition to a medical one. And we've really been divided into tribes, even more so than when I was talking mostly about the carnivore diet. I mean, the carnivore diet, as you know, animal-based diets are incredibly polarizing. And But I think it's just, it's polarizing down different lines, down different borders right now. And some people that were on board with the carnivore diet are now messaging me saying, I used to like your carnivore diet stuff, but now you've become political or now you've become overly political or you're uninformed politically. And this just, it boggles my mind too. And I think, wow, we've really pushed into new territory here. Politics means the issues of the people. I did a podcast this weekend with my friends from The Minimalist. And they said, since when are we not allowed to discuss politics? The word politics means issues of the people. And so for someone to say you're overly political, well, that's not the same thing as being partisan or being you know, associated with a political party or a partisan ideology, but that just means we're talking about what's happening to the people. So I think a lot of, a lot of our audience who's at least responding negatively to this, I think, I think there's a lot of people in our audience that are responding positively, but those who are responding negatively, I fear they misunderstand the actual meaning of the word politics. And so many of the issues we're going to deal with as humans moving forward are inextricable from politics. We have to talk about issues of the people. And the confusion arises when those issues become espoused by a political party. And I think then people associate you or I with a political party because we're saying, let's just hold back a minute and question the coronavirus narrative. And they're saying, whoa, that's, the, that's only happening on conservative news outlets. The liberal media news outlets are just lock stock. They're just in line, social media, you know, social distancing, quarantine. So if you are questioning the narrative, you must be a radical right-wing conservative. And I just, I scratch my head. I, I kind of do one of these, what, how is this even possible that people are thinking that? To me, it's a lot of herd mentality in the bad way, right? This is, mm-hmm. this is, this is too much uh, groupthink. And, and it's, it's crazy. And, and I like also what you mentioned there uh, about our detractors, people who are criticizing us in this very tribal way. Many people will say, Mark Bell, you're not a doctor. Paul Saladino, you're not a, you're not a virologist. <laughs> and you just keep going up the chain. Yeah, whatever doctor you are, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's never good <laughs> enough. Unless you're, unless you're one of the three mainstream epidemiologists or virology PhDs right now, you can't have any opinion. There's only four people right now in the whole world who are allowed to contribute meaningfully to the coronavirus conversation. doesn't matter what you've studied or what you think. And to me, that's just ludicrous because anytime we come upon something new in, in society, no one is qualified. No one has a PhD in the carnivore diet. No one has a PhD in animal-based nutrition. Nobody really has a PhD or an MD in in micronutrients or in differences between animal-based and vegetable-based diets. And, and certainly no one has a PhD in SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. No one is an expert here. And no one is an expert in the way that this specific respiratory virus gets transmitted. So voices like Ivor's and, and Dave Feldman and yours and hopefully mine are valuable because we're just free-thinking humans. And we can look at this. And I have some medical background to interpret Dave it. Dave Feldman, not a doctor. I know, not a doctor, neither is Ivor, but they're both brilliant engineers and they're going to think about problems differently. And if you look at what Dave and Ivor have contributed to the cholesterol space, they are using engineering thinking 
to look at a problem. And time and time again, that trumps the mainstream thinking. And so for people to say, you're not qualified to talk about this, that's irresponsible. I just, I just kind of look at them and shake my head and say, I don't know what to tell you. I think people just need to recognize that, you know, uh, great knowledge can come from anywhere and it can come from anyone. And it all always starts with like error identification. You know, you could just, uh, you know, the guy that made this, uh, this little phone right here or this computer that I'm on, um, you know, he doesn't ha- he didn't have a college degree and another guy who's under fire right now is Bill Gates. But like, you know, I, I don't, I don't think he has a college degree. Well, maybe he did, maybe went back at some point, but I don't think he did. Bill Gates did. Right. Nope. Yeah. Bill I mean, Gates there's so not. many people and then like somebody probably might not even recognize that like someone like Charles Darwin, like he just, he just played, just played around in, in that territory. He didn't, he wasn't necessarily like a scientist or a doctor or, or anything like that. And there's a lot of people that are like that. And we end up with uh, a lot of great conversation because we have these people that dive in so deep and they study so much of it and they study the studies and they, they run tests and they're in labs and they're doing all this stuff. And then you have the opposite side of that. You got somebody who's outside of that, that maybe has a different uh, perspective and a different way of thinking about it. Cause like even the carnivore diet, like the carnivore diet wasn't drummed up by a doctor. The carnivore diet, obviously, it came from like our evolution and things like that. But more recently, uh, my understanding is like there was that guy, the bear, and there was like some other people years ago that were messing with it. But they weren't like they weren't doctors or scientists or researchers or anything, right? A lot of guys in the bodybuilding community have done, um, you right. know, have done carnivore diets. Vince, oh yeah, Geronda. the steak and eggs, yeah, steak yeah. and eggs, and yeah. liver. I mean, Vince Gironda uh, was doing was doing liver, you know, thirty years ago, and saying just eat meat and liver. Hey man, look, you get ripped and you feel good and you get strong. Those old school giant liver tablets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that's been around for 40 years. And like you said, it's been it's been a sort of established and experienced and researched by our ancestors who were hunting in the wilderness, whether it's the Inuit or the the Sami up in um, the the Arctic or Mongolians. Those are the guys who are saying, man, we're just gonna eat mostly animals and these plants, we're gonna leave those for the peasants or the poor. You know, if we can't get animals, we might eat plants, but otherwise we're just going to eat some animals. And then what happens? They generally appear to have been extremely healthy and not had any major health consequences. So I want to ask you, uh, did you, uh, did you, do you normally vote? You know, I, I do vote. I do vote. I'm curious where this question's going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just, I, th- I, I just find that we're in such an interesting time that you can't really even talk about who you voted for. You know, because you're worried that everyone's going to, everyone's going to leave you. And that's again, like why I started this like race to zero followers. It's just me messing around, but I'm kind of just like, Hey, you know, if you're going to leave me, then, then that's fine. You know, it's just a cleaning out process <laughs> of the fans, uh, if you will. But like, you know, I talk openly about the fact that I, I voted for Donald Trump and then, you know, people, it's like the second that you say that they're like waiting for you to say something wrong or they're they're, they're getting ready to shut you off and like go on to listen to the next guy. But just because I choose to talk about it and I, and I don't mind sharing it, um, it doesn't mean that the next guy maybe didn't vote for Trump either. Or even the fact that I openly talk about anabolic steroids. You know, it's like, I, I don't know what Paul Saladino does behind closed doors. I don't know what these other guys do behind closed doors. But if I feel like mentioning it, it, it's amazing how people will they'll use that against you. Like, I'm not going to buy your product because you're behind that or you're behind this thing. And it's like, well, 
you probably don't know anything about the other products that are in your cabinet or the other products that are in your gym. You probably don't know anything about those people. I just happen to want to share it. I just happen to want to put it out there. You're being much more authentic and then people are using it against you. And I, again, I think it speaks to this tribalism and I hope people will wake up to this fact. Um, and I, I love that point that you're making. And, and I've been associated now with Fox News. I've never been on Fox News, right? Like, I, I saw somebody send a message like, this guy is a Fox News contributor. He's a Fox News. He, he likes Fox News. He's conservative. He's, he supports misogyny and women hating. And, and he's a bigot. And he, they just associate you with everything that Trump stands for. And, I mean, we can get into some very interesting territory here briefly before we Have get you back ever to seen it? Have you ever seen a bigger divide in the news? I think, you know, one thing that people need to admit from Donald Trump is that if the guy gave us anything, he gave us one of the greatest gifts of all time. And that's fake news, because <laughs> I think that I think previously, like I used to always think the news was legit. Like I used to sit there like just especially as a kid, like growing up, like I always just thought. And I think I, I don't think the news used to like bend and twist the truth the way they do now. I think they used to just not report about stuff. You know, they just they, they chose not to uh, report about maybe things that were going on in parts of America that they didn't want to showcase that that negative thing. They just wanted to showcase the happy stuff. They wanted to show uh, Mickey Mantle hitting a home run or something like that. And they, you know, ev everything was clean and everything was, you know, proper and there was no foul language and nothing bad was happening here in the United States. I think I think they may have been guilty of that, but I, I don't think that they twisted the truth the way that they do now. I mean, I, I've been a fan of the Today Show forever. I've been watching that for years and years. And the music that they play in the beginning of that is enough to, to make your, I mean, have a heart rate monitor on while you're watching it and, and listen to the opening segment about the coronavirus and how it's killed more people than uh, Vietnam and stuff like that. You, your heart rate will probably escalate. Your blood pressure will probably go up. Probably not going to feel so good after you, the, the, the uh, music itself builds anxiety. It's like, man, what are they doing? Why are they, why can't they just report to us in, in, a, in a way that just gives us the information so we can make decisions for ourselves? You know, I, that's a fantastic question and I'll give you my answer. And I bet you know the answer as, as well as I do. And it's the fact that they want eyeballs. They're not in the business of giving us information. They're in the business of grabbing our attention the news media is not to be mistaken for a scientific journal. There's no peer review. Mm. There's no committee. There's no one censoring or I should say censuring or I should say considering that information at an objective level. All they're doing is saying what is going to get the most eyeballs because the news media makes money by eyeballs. This is not news. This is not, you know, radical information to anyone, but I'll just remind everyone. The news media is making information by you paying attention and watching the commercials. They don't care what information they put there. If there was big bird, if there was an infestation of big bird running down the street of New Orleans and we had a new species of, of Muppets that were <laughs> discovered, they would report on that if it would get, you know, 60 million people watching the news. They don't care. And so they're, they're in the business of getting eyeballs on the screen and keeping them there. One of the things I talked about in a recent podcast with my friends, The Minimalist, is I want people to look at what the commercials are during the Today Show what the commercials are during Fox News, what the commercials are during CNN and MSNBC, and to realize that the people advertising to us right now are pharmaceutical companies, 
and junk food manufacturers. <laughs> they are preying on fear. I posted something about this on my Instagram. Junk how food dare, sales. How dare you? How dare you? I know, you? right? You're not a, you're not a virologist. <laughs> <laughs> junk food sales are soaring right now, as are alcohol sales, as is domestic violence. So it's all, it's all kind of a snatch and grab. The media is loving coronavirus. Make no mistake about the, who is profiting from this. News media is loving coronavirus because more people are watching the news than ever before. They're glued to their television sets for hope of a vaccine or hope of a new treatment or because they're fear-based and they're looking to see, did it wipe out a million people overnight? Is there a new viral sprain, strain spreading? Did it mutate? And it's always the same story. And so that's been one of the frustrating parts for me about coronavirus is trying to really, as you bring up, understand what is the objective truth through all this? And no one can know completely, but I'm trying. And I, that's why I appreciate these conversations. What is the objective truth amongst the fake news? And I think news media outlets on both sides are responsible for fake news and twisting it. And like you say, if you compare Fox News to CNN, they can have a completely different slant on exactly the same piece of information. And it's always in line with their political leanings. So it's very difficult for people to get, to get the actual objective truth out of it. But what I see over and over is that the hysteria stories, the fear stories are the ones that get the most eyeballs and the most attention. More people are going to watch a story about a young, healthy person in New York City who died from coronavirus because that is going to inspire fear. If that narrative is true, then we could all die. Oh, and guess what? Fiery Hot Cheetos are on sale at Safeway. Back to our regularly scheduled program. And how many of those stories have you seen? You know, I've only seen like, honestly, I've been watching the news quite a bit and I, I've only seen that two or three times. It doesn't mean it's only happened two or three times, but where I was like, wow, that guy looks, that guy looks fairly healthy. Now, maybe he had some uh, pre-existing condition that they're, <laughs> they're not mentioning, but uh, for the most part, like I haven't seen, I haven't seen much of that. And I, I like what you're saying there. And it reminds me of making a YouTube video, you know, and, and you're, you know, you're um, like uh, if you make a YouTube post about how the coronavirus uh, could potentially or how the carnivore diet, sorry, how the <laughs> carnivore diet could potentially help you, uh, um, you know, have a better body fat composition. It's like, well, that's not really that sexy of a uh, that's not really that sexy of a narrative. You know, you might say have the best body of your life with the carnivore diet or something like that. Right. And that's, that's what they're trying to do. And that's why they, you know, when I can picture them, imagine them typing that out on their computer to get those words to pop up on the screen, you know, like, okay, COVID, they're like, no, that's not deadly enough. Like, let's make this sound worse than it really, <laughs> I mean, they are trying, they're trying to, they're trying to amplify it up. Right. And I, I didn't even really think about what you said about the, uh, the commercials, but you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, holy crap. Yeah, that is, that is all that you, that is all you continue to see. And how many of us are, um, are really, are really aware of what is being advertised to us? That's just, that's a challenging thing. When we're watching those, when we're watching those news media outlets, it's very hard for me. And I think many other people to say, wait a minute, why is it all junk food or why is it all Oreos or what are they actually trying to get me to buy? We've been so conditioned. I heard a statistic the other day that by the, child is, by the time a child is five or six, they've seen 20,000 advertisements. Or oh my God. You know, I'm, just, I'm just 
you know, spitballing those numbers, but it's in the tens of thousands before we reach a single decade of life. We're so programmed. It's absolutely crazy. You know, I think a good question for the people that are listening right now to ask themselves is, you know, why normally the answer kind of lies down the middle, right? And I think that if you are somebody that, uh, if you're somebody that's been around for a little while and you're somebody that um, can think clearly and not get uh, emotionally attached to one thing or the other, uh, I think they've done some surveys on this and I, I forget what the numbers are, but the majority of America is not Democrat and they're not Republican <laughs> because I don't think people really believe in those parties anymore. Like that's old, like that doesn't really. And then kind of same thing with uh, people's religion, like people, they might not declare a religion as strongly as they used to here in the United States. And I think that people are smart enough. People are a lot smarter than they, than they get, than they get credit for. I think people are smart enough to know the answer usually lies somewhere down the middle. I think if we're, if we're thinking about it from a dietary standpoint, we're thinking about it from all the different things that we've explored when it comes to strength training and exercise, yeah, the answer usually lies down the middle. Like, it probably wouldn't be in your best interest to only power lift. It probably, it might not be in everyone's best interest to only eat meat. It might be a decent idea to open up the playbook a little bit because maybe you don't feel like eating meat all the time. Maybe that's just not your not your thing. And for the majority of, of, a lot, of a lot of people, maybe they don't enjoy that, right? But I think the answer always lies in, in the middle somewhere. And if you're looking at, like, I just would question, why is Sweden doing it that way? And I'm not saying that they have the answers, but why, why have they chose to basically do kind of the exact opposite of what we're doing? Like, my understanding is they're still practicing social distancing. And I know that people are going to say, hey, they've got more deaths and they're going to point to these numbers. But when the quarantine is over, it's going to appear that the quarantine worked because that's what they want to share with you anyway. That that's I, I'm not like a big conspiracy theorist, but that is going to be the story. Like, oh, look, it worked because most of the people that are going to come out of their homes are going to be people like you and I that are already healthy. And most of the other people are going to be like, hey, man, I got type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes. I'm not going to really risk, you know, going to the gym. I'm going to chill for a little bit longer until I get some more information, right? And so I, I, that's, that's my thing is like, just look around. I mean, Sweden didn't, it's not like Sweden made this up. They followed the science as well. So how could they follow the science and end up with their answers? And we followed the science and ended up with our answers. That's, that's my question. There's, I've seen some videos the tale of dueling epidemiologists. And these are the guys who are supposed to be the experts. And there are two experts who can completely disagree with each other and say, we should be doing this. We shouldn't be doing this. There was a great video that was making its rounds on Instagram or Twitter. I don't know exactly remember who was in it. It was this British woman who was just parodying how much conflicting information there is around coronavirus. And, and I'll have to try and find a link and post to it post link it in this video, but she's saying this virus is very deadly, but, but don't fear. It's not going to kill you. It only kills old people and people with comorbidities. And she was just really parodying the fact, you know, you know, stay in your homes, but, but get out and exercise. But you know, how many conflicting things we're seeing right now around coronavirus, it was just comical that, that anyone would suggest or pretend that we know how to deal with this or that we really know the answer is just a farce. 
And we all need to accept, hey, we, we should be gathering data and trying to think about this as objectively as possible. But there's so much mixed messaging happening right now. And look how bad <clears throat> uh, the WHO organization has. Uh, oh, my goodness. Like they, they changed their tune. Um, they changed their tune nonstop. I mean, first they were talking about how Sweden is bad. And then now they're talking about how they might be the model. They didn't know how you can contract it at first. They were like, it can't be passed from person to person. It's not that contagious. And then they changed their tune on that. Master good, master bad, master good. Like they, they've been an absolute wreck. What a disaster of an organization. Like if that's your only job, <laughs> you know, I, I used to only have one job. My job was to be really strong. And when I had that one job, I squatted 1,080, I benched 854. And if I stunk at that job, I would have quit it a long time ago. These guys, they need to just stop. I don't know what, I don't know why the organization is even in existence. Maybe they've done some uh, good work in the past and maybe they prevented us from getting uh, other viruses that we don't even, that we don't even know about. But man, they are just not looking very good right now. It's, yeah. And then all of the, the U.S. pulling the funding and, it doesn't look very good. It doesn't look very good at all. So the Sweden thing is interesting and we can dig into that a little bit so people will know. The main thing, the mainstream narrative, narrative that I'm hearing right now about Sweden is they've got twice as many deaths per capita as Finland. And that's a little bit misleading to say that because if you look at Sweden's per capita death rate, it's right in the middle of Europe. It's not the highest and it's not the lowest. And, you know, it's less than France, it's less than Spain, it's less than Italy, it's less than the UK, it's probably right on par with France, and it's a little bit higher than Denmark and Finland. Other epidemiologists have noted that a lot of the elderly population in Sweden, I think 58% of the elderly population in Sweden is cloistered into nursing homes. And what do we know about that? Well, if you put a whole bunch of elderly people, number one, elderly people appear to be much more susceptible to this disease. And anyone who denies that um, perhaps hasn't read the, the data to this point. But if you cluster a bunch of people who are very susceptible to the disease in a certain housing setting, that could make them more vulnerable to dying from the disease. So if you have a disease that is more severe in people who are elderly and you have people who are elderly living together more in a country like Sweden versus Finland, the actual social structure of the country is different, then that could account for a difference as well. The other thing to mention is that there's been some great articles written comparing the per capita death rate or whatever number you want to choose looking at how many people were dying on day 21 after the first one death per X number of deaths. So basically there are all these complex models that are being created to try and track, to try and kind of normalize different countries because all this is happening at different times. But let's say if you make day number one, the day when there were a hundred deaths in the country or the day when there were 20 deaths in the country, and you go out 21 days from that, let's compare how many deaths there are in every country because those all occurred at different times on the calendar. And if you do that, what you can see is there's no real consistent pattern regarding the per capita death rate relative to how quickly a state or a country went into a strict quarantine or a lockdown. You can look at Sweden, you can compare it to other states in the US, and you can compare other states in the US to each other and say, well, a lot of the states that went into a very quick lockdown have some of the worst death rates and some other states who didn't really do much lockdown at all don't have bad death rates. And you can, it's just, it's very complex equation. Does it have to do with density? Does it have to do with clustering of elderly people? Does it have to do with overall obesity rates? There are so many variables, but I think at this point for anyone to claim 
as you're suggesting, that social distancing or quarantine is saving lives is really premature because the story is not fully written. And uh, I think that we had to do something. We had to make a choice to do something and we didn't really know what we were going to do, but I don't think we did a great job. And, and I would actually at this point take, take a stand and say, I think we did the wrong thing. And I think we did the wrong thing because we weren't considering the economic implications and weighing it all. And we were using models that were flawed, predominantly the models from the Royal College of London, predicting 500,000 to 2 million deaths. And these models have been quickly revised. And I think we had to do something, but I think we did the wrong thing. That's all water under the bridge now. We need to figure out how to move forward. And, and that's where I fear we're going to continue to do the wrong thing and just be very, very slow about this. But if people want to dig into this, uh, I, I can do more content actually looking at the detailed numbers of Sweden. But if you look at Sweden, like I said, it's in the middle of Europe and it's actually much better than many of the states in the U.S. So Sweden is better than many states in the U.S. Sweden is not particularly worse than the U.S. And the story's not written yet. And again, this, some of this is a little esoteric and hard for people to really understand it until they look at all the data. But the virus needs to be spreading in a country for a certain amount of time to really see the curve. And I'll I'll show some data from different countries as we get further on in this podcast. What you can see in, in every country, regardless of their strategy, is a typical pattern of a respiratory virus. If you're looking at the number of people, the number of new cases of a virus per day or the number of deaths from a virus per day, what you'll see very clearly is that in, in most countries or pretty much every country, you get kind of the same pattern. Um, I'll just show Germany's real quickly to illustrate this. So if you guys are, are listening on iTunes, you can oh, go there you YouTube go. to watch this. Yeah. So you can see this is the typical pattern. So on the y-axis is novel coronavirus daily cases. Um, again, Germany is one of the countries that has been ha probably had it the least bad. But you can see that you can kind of track this first beginning. Their, their graph starts around March the 4th, and then it goes up, and then it goes back down. And most of the models look exactly like this. And most of the countries have a graph that looks almost exactly like this, right? It goes up. It has a bell-shaped curve. You can draw a line of best fit over this to have this up and then down. The, the tail of it looks a little lower, but you can see Germany goes up, then it goes down. Now, one of the tricky parts of this is that different days can be different based on reporting. It's an imperfect, um, it's an imperfect uh, metric because you're not always reporting. Now, Sweden looks a little different, but... Sweden might be either more drawn out or their reporting might be different. You can see here, Sweden goes up and then Sweden's kind of looked like it was going to go down. Then it's going back up, looked like it's going to go down, going back up. But I think that it's hard to know what the reporting is looking like in these different states or different countries. Um, Sweden is now, you know, still kind of staying on this plateau phase. They are probably a little bit ahead uh, or I should say behind of where Germany is. And we'll start to see this tail off in a, a very soon. You can look at the United States we're starting to look the same in the United States when we look at the total number of cases. We go up and then we peaked and we're kind of starting to trend down now. You can see this. Again, there's this little bit of an outlier here, probably having to do with more testing or more reporting. But overall, you can see that we kind of peaked and we're starting to trend down. I'll show just one more graph just to really illustrate how, um, how consistent this pattern is among countries. You can also look across different countries that did, did different strategies of, um, of social distancing or not. You can look between states and see the same sort of pattern between them all and, and really get a sense for the fact that this is a viral pattern, that when you have a respiratory virus, this is Spain goes up, 
comes back down. And Spain was one of the worst hit countries. But again, it goes up and it comes back down. This is, this is not social distancing causing this to go down, in my opinion. This is the way a respiratory virus functions. It goes through the population and then it tapers off. And I don't think those graphs are going to look very different when it's all said and done, no matter what we did. And if that's the case, then we stop the economy for nothing. And you said it earlier, when people hear this, they say, you're crass. You want people to die. <laughs> and I just shake my head. No, this is not money versus lives. This is lives versus lives. The economic implications of this are vast. So that was my little ramble. What do you think of all that? I, I love it. I think that... Um you know, I think it's just, it's great for people just to consider like, yeah, what, what can be done, especially moving forward. Um, I would have to say that I think that it was a good idea to put everything on pause for a period of time. But I think that period of time uh, has gone by long enough. I think we have enough information to continue onward and to ask everybody to kind of stop what they're doing for a short amount of time, even if it was like wrong. Like, even if we look back and say, hey, you know what? That wasn't really productive. Um, at least it was precautionary. Like, at least we, at least we tried. You know, we, we tried something. And, and I don't have any problem with that. And I, I'm a huge believer in failing fast. And I believe the only way you can correct things, the only way you can come to conclusions is by messing up. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, look at how many people have died in medical history because of weir weir weird, crazy uh, things that they've tried over the years. You know, they used to drill holes in people's heads uh, when people had headaches. Like, they just, right? Like, and then you recognize, hey, that's not a good, that's not a good way to go about uh, handling, like, a headache, you know? And how many people had to die, you know, uh, when they do, like, heart surgeries and transplants and all these different things. It's the only way to do it. The only way to do it is is to have you know, it sucks, but uh, the only way to learn sometimes is is to have the ultimate consequence, and that is, um, that is, you know, people dying. But I, I think, you know, when if you think about if we were just to like go about our business, uh, and we never and we never we never stopped, you know, we just never um, never went into quarantine. I think, just as you're pointing out, I think the numbers would be similar. Um, I do think maybe the healthcare system would be uh, overloaded, as many people have kind of pointed out. But I think that might only be in certain locations and certain spots, you know, like New York City and and things of that nature. And I also think that um, we could have used a lot better leadership when it came when it came to uh, these hospitals getting getting overrun because there's dentist office that are, that would be wide open that have a lot of, they, they may not have all the same things. I understand they don't have, may not have like ventilators, but not everyone needed a ventilator. Um, there, there's other things that could have been done uh, that, that could have really helped. And I think from now moving forward, I still think we need a lot of leadership. I think there's a guy in Maine right now, Today is uh, May 1, I believe. And he just said, F it. Like, I'm, I'm opening up. Like, I'm opening up my restaurant. You can, you can look him up online. I saw him uh, on the news last night. He decided just to open up his restaurant despite Maine being shut down. Not that many people have gotten sick and not that many people have died. And he said, look, I'm, I'm just going to open it up. I can practice social distancing here. I have a large restaurant. I'm able, to, I'm able to space people out. He's like, this seems like the most logical thing to do. And they said, well, what do you think is going to happen when you have this facility open? Like, are you going to get shut down? 
He's like, I don't have any idea because I've tried to contact the mayor. I've tried to contact uh, local authorities. I've tried to communicate about this. I've tried to let them know what I think is right, why I think, you know, we should reopen. He's like, and no one's listening to me. No one will even take my phone call. And he was so frustrated that he tried to give out the, uh, he tried to give out like the mayor of Maine or whatever it is. Uh, he tried to give out her, or maybe governor, I guess it would be, uh, of Maine. He tried to give out like her phone number, like on the actual, on the actual news. Cause he's like, maybe you guys have a better time. They shut him down. But anyway, I, I think that that guy's got a point. And, uh, I, I think that all of us should be able to get, get back to business. Yeah. It brings up so many questions, which, um, I think we're all asking, did the quarantine work? Who knows? Is it time to continue it? Probably not. In my opinion, your opinion, are we all going to get exposed to the virus? I believe so. I have not heard many people suggest otherwise. And yet at the same time, I think there remains in the collective consciousness, some perspective that, that somehow the quarantine prevents people from getting exposed to the virus. And I've talked about this repeatedly, 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 the idea that flattening the curve has nothing to do with the number of people who are going to get exposed to the virus eventually because the area under the curve is the same in both, both, uh, both models. And that the, the main issue with flattening the curve is to prevent healthcare system overwhelm. As you suggest, I think correctly, uh, the healthcare system is a heterogeneous um, ceiling and some places were not close to being overwhelmed and some places were close to being overwhelmed. So the response probably should have been different throughout the country. I did a recent podcast with my friend Kyle Kingsbury. And I think that regardless, we should not have been fearful of the virus. And I don't believe that the coronavirus is a superbug. I tweeted about this too. I think it's mostly a virus that is exposing our metabolic unhealth as a human population. And this is not a superbug and that the best way to get through the storm is to face it head on. We're mostly cowering in fear and being told to hide in our homes. And I want to get to the vitamin D studies, which are a very interesting part uh, that might be a negative side of quarantine. But I just want to share a few more things here for people to look at. Um, so uh, this is an article from CNN. We can, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get crap now because I'm using a CNN study. People are going to think I'm a, a radical left liberal here. Uh, you know, so, Basically, this is a study from CNN, or it's an article from CNN referring to an article in JAMA, um, which I can highlight as well, the Journal of the American Medical Association. And basically, the idea here is that um, this is the study in the journal, journal of the American Medical Association. I've talked about this one before, presenting characteristics, comorbidities, outcomes among 5,700 patients hospitalized with COVID in the New York City area. What we take away from this study is that a lot of people who were put on ventilators actually died. And this is, again, not to be crass. It's not to be insensitive. It's just to point out that um, ventilator therapy for people on coronavirus didn't work well. Uh, I think we knew from the start that it wasn't working well. Again, as you suggest, we have to try it. But to have stopped the country to get ventilators, these really became one of the least effective therapies that we had. Um, it didn't work very well. And unfortunately, a lot of people who got put on ventilators ended up dying. Um, so that's a questionable uh, intervention as well. And I, you, you hear so many different things. And this goes back to the fake news. I saw a video of a respiratory therapist in New York City standing behind an army of ventilators saying, does it look like we're out of ventilators? No. It's so hard to know how much of this is news media fear mongering. I'm not denying that there were people in ICUs. 
I did a podcast last week with my friend Trocolasian, who's a, who's a physician in, in the outskirts of New York City. And, and he was talking to his friend who were intensivists, and they said, yeah, the ICUs are full of people with coronavirus, but it's not that way everywhere. And the media certainly did not represent that accurately. What are some of your thoughts on having someone on your podcast like Dr. Batar? I don't know if you saw or if you know who he is. Did you see anything that I posted about Dr. Batar? Yeah, this is actually something that's good for me to address. I've gotten requests to have Dr. Shiva on my podcast and, and Dr. Batar. And I don't like to go that far down the conspiracy rabbit hole unless I have done my own research. I don't think it's responsible. And, and both of these guys are really really far down in that rabbit hole. I think that it's important for us to question what's going on beneath the surface, but I am not, I don't really buy that stuff at face value. And, and he's a little bit too out there for me right now. I that makes def- sense because your, your podcast is, uh, is science-based. And, and for me, I was seeing some of the stuff that he said and I was like, you know, I was like, I agree with some of it. So I, I'm going to pull him in and I'm going to see, and I'm going to also challenge him on some of the stuff that I disagree with him. But like for me, my podcast, like I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, share like, you know, case studies with people. I'm not saying the carnivore diet's going to do this to your blood and it's going to, you know, uh, getting the right amount of sleep and right amount of vitamin D is going to end up with X, Y, and Z for you. I don't ever do that because I don't ever really, I, I never come across in that way. I, I more am just talking about points of interest that things that have interest me and things that have interest uh, my co-hosts. Those are the people that we have on our show and that's usually how we do it. So for you, I think that absolutely is the right decision. I think that's good on you. Yeah. And I don't think 5G is causing <laughs> <Right>. coronavirus. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it, it, yeah, right. But but it, at the same time, could could you could could people understand how uh, technology or any advancements or any shortcuts can be potentially harmful? I think it's just Absolutely. it's one it, yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like, it, could all the beams and cell towers and all the crap running through our body uh, have a negative impact? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sure it can. Is he uh, is he sensationalizing it? A hundred percent, he is. This is a very important point that I, that worries me. I fear that after the coronavirus pandemic, because there's been so much blowback about 5G causing coronavirus, which I don't think is the case, anyone who says that 5G or Wi-Fi or EMFs or, you know, electromagnetic radiation could be harmful to humans is going to be labeled as a troglodyte, (laughs) is going to be labeled in the same category, they're going to get one of these monikers. So this has happened before. You're an anti-vaxxer. You're a climate denier. You're a 5G Luddite. It's going to be the same thing. And my problem with all of those things is that it shuts down reasonable conversation about them. Mm. And it, we need to be able to have a reasonable conversation. I about like those. that. Yeah. I I'm agree. not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not a climate denier. And I'm, you know, I do not believe 5G is causing coronavirus but I think every single one of those merits conversation and merits some discussion because as you're suggesting from what I've seen, does EMF affect humans? You bet it does. And does it affect some people more than others? We're trying to figure it out. Should we completely ignore EMF? No. Right. And, and I mean, we can just get super controversial here and see what happens to my podcast. Maybe I'll get burned down for this. But <laughs> I, I've, I've heard people say things like this, like, uh, you know, in, in NorCal, a lot of times there's issues with fires, right? 
Well, one way to assure that you don't have any fires is to get rid of all the trees. Are there repercussions to getting rid of all the trees? Like, yeah, of, of course. I mean, can, can you think about that logically? Like, does that have a negative impact? Yeah, I'm sure it does. Like, you're going to kill a lot of animals and you're going to drive a lot of uh, natural. There's just like natural stuff to the earth that is supposed to be there. The dirt, the grass, the trees, all the things that come with the trees, the birds, all of it is supposed to be there. Uh, we don't even know why it's all supposed to be there. We can't, you can't uh, figure out why it's all, why it's all uh, so meaningful, but it clearly is. It clearly is. And I don't think that's the answer too. We don't just pave the earth. We don't just, <laughs> we don't just make the earth into a skate park or coat everything in Nerf, you know, to make it super safe. But with regard to those labels, I'll just say that I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I don't believe we should get rid of vaccines but I also believe that there are children who are harmed by vaccines. And so how do we reconcile those? We need to have that conversation that what if, what if there are children who get harmed by vaccines? How do we know which ones get harmed by vaccines? And that should not be a controversial statement to say we shouldn't, I'm not saying we should get rid of all vaccines, but I'm also not saying we should stick our head in the sand and ignore that perhaps these are harmful to some people and we need to look for that evidence. And so that statement alone might get me blackballed by even saying, but that's what I fear it's going to happen with 5G now because 5G was associated with coronavirus and it was such a, I think mostly considered to be ludicrous that, that 5G was causing coronavirus, anyone who brings up EMF in the future, they're gonna be like, oh, you're one of those 5G crazies. And it's the same thing with climate change. I don't think we can deny that the climate is changing. And I don't think we can deny that humans are contributing to the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But there's a more nuanced conversation there just like there is with 5G, just like there is with EMF, just like there is with vaccines, just like there is with so many of these discussions that cannot be off limits. We have to be able to discuss climate and how much humans are actually contributing to climate change and how many of the people who have strong opinions about vaccines, 5G, or climate have actually done master's level research on these things? Almost no one, right? I know you're super passionate about like the environment <clears throat> and things of that nature. And I've been saying this for a while and I, I sometimes people get upset, but like I've noticed that mo in most cases people are uh, environmentally aware and they're into the environment until it's no longer convenient. And I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm out here in Bodega Bay and I got the beach kind of as the back set here, but there's also a lot of paved roads and, you know, the, the, the roads are paved out of convenience. It's so like when you're driving your car, you don't have to go 35 miles an hour and have a rocky, bumpy ride. But you think about like, like how cushy is that? Like how, how that's kind of, it's almost kind of laughable. It's almost kind of silly, but that's what we do. We put block top down, right? As I go for walks, I do a lot of walking and a lot of running around here. And as I'm doing that, I cannot go on a walk or a run on any day without seeing a leaf blower, <laughs> a, a lawnmower, or, a, um, or like a weed whacker every single time. And it's like, I never hear anybody talk about those kinds of things. It's really just cows <laughs> and transportation is like the only thing you ever hear mentioned. But does everyone in society have to own a leaf blower? Does everyone in society need to have a weed whacker? Like these things... When, I, when I'm running, I'm smelling the gases of it and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, it just makes me think, like, how into the environment are people really? You know, how, how willing are they to, 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 try, to try to make changes? 
I think they're only willing to make changes until uh, it's not convenient. That's not for everybody, but for most people, I would say. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think we all drive cars and we all use technology and we're, you and I are talking over Zoom on a computer that caused technology, that caused carbon emissions. There is a carbon footprint to this technology and it is, it is intense. And I talked about that at the end of my book, uh, the carnivore code, everyone will know about that, the, the, the relative contributions of these things. What's most interesting or important for me, what's really highlighted here is just that we need to be able to have these conversations. And this kind of wraps it back to the beginning of the conversation and what we were talking about with tribalism. For anyone to want to shut people up for questioning the status quo, I believe that really hampers human progress. And this is, you know, it's so funny. I've been listening to this great series of podcasts on Joe Rogan with Randall Carlson and Graham Hancock, and they're talking about alternative archaeology. And, and it's the same paradigm that I see you and I in, in the nutrition world, in the medical world, in the weightlifting and powerlifting world. It's the establishment looking at both of us and saying, you're crazy, you're wrong. How could you even consider that? Because we're questioning the status quo. And it's so interesting. For people that are not familiar with this, I would really recommend it on Joe's podcast. Randall Carlson is a very interesting guy talking about meteoric impacts on the surface of the earth, how they might have affected climate change 10 to 12,000 years ago at what's called the Younger Dryas period. Perhaps there was a Younger Dryas meteoric impact. Joe had another guy on his podcast named Robert Schock, who's a geologist and is involved with Egypt and Egyptian history. And he's talking about these coronal mass ejections, which are solar flares, which could have affected our climate. But no matter what, if you question the status quo in geology, archaeology, environment, or like Graham Hancock does, you know, in anthropology or these, you know, these previous civilizations, you get vilified. People say, you're crazy. How can you do that? And they don't even want to talk to you. And that's what bugs me the most is that we need people to question it. And, and maybe I'm off base and people can tell me that, but it's really good to have people thinking outside of the box. You know, Joe also had, I've been listening to a lot of Joe Rogan recently. Joe also had Eric Weinstein on recently. And Eric Weinstein said something that I thought was amazing. And Eric Weinstein is probably one of the smartest people I've ever heard speak in general. He said, we need, we need the people who are we're wild. We need the people who are crazy and thinking outside of the box. We need people who are pushing the boundaries. We need those type of people because that's how we learn. And to shut it down, to say vaccines are off limits, EMF is off limits, climate is off limits. Really? Like there's a lot of nuanced conversation there. And again, just to be very clear for everyone listening, I'm not anti-vax, I'm not a climate denier, and I'm not saying that 5G is causing coronavirus. But I do think there are nuanced conversations in every single one of those things, and including the carnivore diet. The carnivore diet is just like those things. It, people will look at it and say, that's crazy. How can you do that? And they just dismiss it. And we need to be able to have those conversations to move it forward. We can't have this knee jerk. And I'm not saying you and I, but I hope that people will begin to see with this coronavirus, how much of a knee jerk reaction we as a society, these tribal networks have toward anything that questions the status quo and how limiting that is for our growth as humans. I think a, a really healthy thing for people to understand, and I, I know a lot of people already know this, but, you know, the only thing you have rule over, the only thing you have control over is your thoughts. You know, no one can make you feel any particular way. The news can't give you anxiety. Um, the coronavirus can't, can't make you feel scared. It's just your interpretation of it. And so, you know, tr try your best to decipher through the facts, 
you got CNN on one side, you got Fox on the other. Maybe you try to, uh, you know, not watch the news and maybe you just try to interpret the information the best you can from the most reliable sources that, that you feel that you can find. And, um, you know, just try not to let yourself get uh, emotionally bogged down, you know, and I think that that is a real, is a real concern at this time. I think if, if, if this thing has done anything uh, positive, it, it may be just the fact that maybe people are just thinking a little bit more. And I, I actually think it's very healthy for people to talk about politics. Um, it's, it's healthy for people to talk about religion. It's healthy for people to talk about their values, but, you know, not in a hateful way and not, you know, I, I'm hoping that they can listen to each other. You know, because because talking about it's great, but if you're if you're you know if you're not listening to the other side, uh, then I think uh, we're we're missing a, a big piece of the puzzle. The uh, sun is popping out right here, man. I'm getting some uh, I'm getting some of that vitamin D while we're podcasting, buddy. Let's talk about it. So this was when we started the podcast. I said I really want to talk about this new data because it's just come out in the last week since my last podcast, and and you were excited about this too. So. One of the overarching messages that I've been trying to share with people with regard to coronavirus is that I strongly believe, and I think you feel the same way, that your health as a human, your fundamental health, see what I did there, you guys? That's the name of my podcast, that your fundamental foundational health as a human is the biggest arbiter in how we do with regard to coronavirus. And that's not been the mainstream narrative. You're not going to hear that on the Today Show. You're going to hear fearful uh, news media commentary about young people dying from coronavirus. If you are aware of this, or if any of my listeners are aware of any news media outlet that is saying, don't fear, what matters most is how healthy you are and your lifestyle, then please send it to Mark and I, because that would be, and I want to promote that, because I think that is what I am seeing. Now, <clears throat> is that going to prevent you from getting coronavirus? No. <clears throat> is that going to prevent you from having a severe course of COVID-19? That is the main question. I believe it will. And so this new data <clears throat> on previous podcasts, if you want to hear, I've talked a lot about insulin resistance. I talked about vegetable oils with Kate Shanahan. I talked about micronutrients on my first podcast. This is probably the fifth or sixth podcast I've done talking about all these issues with coronavirus. I did a whole podcast on insulin resistance with Stephen Hussey. I talked about it with Trocollagian last week. I talked about vegetable oils with Kate Shanahan. I had a whole podcast with Kirk Parsley. You guys can go back and listen to all of those. And I did an original coronavirus podcast in the middle of March when I talked about my thoughts about all of this. But my takeaway after thinking about coronavirus way too much for the last few weeks <laughs> is, that, is that insulin resistance is a huge risk factor. Obesity is a risk factor. Metabolic dysfunction, which is essentially synonymous with insulin resistance, is a huge risk factor. Nutrient inadequacy is a big risk factor. So we know all of those things, but let's share, as Mark is standing in the Bodega Bay and getting sunlight, I want to talk about this recent vitamin D data. This is so cool. And you mentioned this to me. What have you heard about this, Mark? And then I'll go into it. Yeah, one thing I want to mention uh, is that I love the information that you share. And I, I think sometimes that gets confused. You know, people get, I, I think if you're to break down some of the stuff you share and, and I realize that you are, you know, full carnivore and you, you just eat meat basically and, and, or nose to tail and things like that. Um, but also I would say that like, you're probably just in general promoting, look, 
whatever way you got to stay healthy, you know, do it, you know, and in your case, you're primarily eating fat and protein and that has worked really well for you and you've seen it work in a lot of other people as well. And I think that most people, most people in the health and fitness space and most people that, that care about people being healthy understand this is that if you're just not overeating, you have some very simple health practices, maybe you meditate a little bit here and there, maybe you stretch a little bit here and there, maybe you exercise, you get sleep, you hydrate, um, and you just simply don't overeat, then you're going to have full access to what your body's supposed to be able to do. And it, the, the actual diet that you follow, I know you're passionate about it, so we're going to say that it does matter, it does make a difference, because <laughs> because that's we're excited about it, right? But really, if you just if you can if you can just not do so many things to yourself negatively, and negatively impact your metabolism and end up with a lot of dysfunction, then you're going to have full access to all the things that your body can do, and your body can fight off infections, your body can fight off viruses, your body can be very very powerful, more powerful than we even understand. There's there's it's just it's hard to even. Uh, really truly comprehend but the but the way everything works is it all works in synergy with each other and when you start to go down the path of eating things that are put on this earth for us to eat which sometimes can be a little debatable uh, but for the most part I think that we recognize uh, humans are meat eaters humans are omnivores humans have the ability to eat some other things but mostly what should be on our plate is meat. I'm a huge fan of that as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe some liver and maybe some stuff like that here and there to get, to get the, the vitamins and minerals that you need. Uh, but when you do that in combination with other stuff that we're supposed to do, like be outside, get some sunlight, um, now you're really starting to not only have just access to what your body's capable of doing, but maybe you have uh, – even like an advancement on your body. Maybe, you, maybe you're going to get an extra 20 years. Maybe you're going to uh, just, just be a lot stronger, a lot healthier, not get sick as often. Um, maybe you're going to be able to uh, just in, enjoy life more, have more energy. I hear people oftentimes, they're like, dude, how do you stay motivated? And motivation's never a problem for me. And I think it's because I'm healthy. It's because I'm like, eh, shit, I don't really want to go to bed, but I know I need to, so I'll go to bed. <laughs> I know I need the sleep because if I don't have the sleep, I don't have the recovery for each and every day. But just noticing, you know, the difference it's made. I started walking about six, seven years ago. Um, I got all the way up to 330 pounds for powerlifting. I got big. I got real chubby. I got real fat. And uh, at that time, it was very common for me to travel to a powerlifting meet do the contest and then come back home with a cold, come back home with a flu because the whole process was super stressful. But also I didn't have uh, access to what my body's supposed to be able to do because I probably had some insulin resistance. I had high blood pressure. I had X, Y, and Z going on because not only was I on a meat-based diet, but I was also eating a lot of carbohydrates and uh, not just any old carbohydrates, eating some ice cream and pizza and things like that here and there. And I was definitely overeating. You know, I was over fat. 330 pounds is, is way too big on someone who's about uh, 5'11". How much do you weigh and, now? Uh, right now, I weigh about 230. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a 100 pound difference. But when I started walking years ago, 
it was really, it, it was just kind of odd to me. I was like, wow, like I'm, I'm starting to sleep better. And with, with very little change in my diet, um, I started to get in a little bit better shape, just all from walking. And then the walking helped promote uh, me taking a look at like what I'm, you know, me taking a better look at better examination of what I'm eating in the kitchen. And I was like, you know what, I've, I've been on a low carb diet on, on and off for most of my life. I just need to get back to that. Kind of went keto, did some paleo type stuff, and then ended up uh, following you and Dr. Sean Baker into, uh, into the carnivore world. But what I didn't know at that time was the walks were really changing everything for me because they were changing my mood. They were changing the way that I felt. They were changing my sleep. And I think a lot of it had to do with the sun. And then I started hearing more and more people talking about like vitamin D. So I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to like load up on vitamin D. So, you know, I went on Amazon and, and bought a bunch of vitamin D, but I don't think that's the way to do it. I think, you know, what you do, uh, what you do to yourself will never be as important as what you do for yourself. So what you do for yourself, going out for a 10-minute walk, it can't be replaced by just going and, and popping some vitamin. I, I wish it was that simple. And I do think the supplementation can assist and it can help. But I also think that you need healthy practices and you have those two things slammed together and you end up with a strong recipe for staying healthy and strong. I totally agree. Thanks for sharing that. I wanted to get some of your story into this podcast as well. So that's amazing. And yeah, let's, let's dig into that stuff. So like Mark and I were talking about, clearly with coronavirus, diet is important. Uh, micronutrients are important. Body composition is important. Sleep is important. And lifestyle is important. And one of the concerns that I've had from the very beginning of this quarantine is that people were not going to be outside as much. Sure, there might be people outside walking their dog and getting some sun, but people are not going to be exercising as much in the sun, at least in San Diego here. The beaches are closed, Right. You can't be outside walking around unless you're moving. You can't sit in a, on a table at a coffee shop outside with your friends. Let's go, Gavin Newsom. What are you doing? I know. What are you doing, Gavin Newsom? I know you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> and, you know, you can't even be on the beach with your friends. And so I think that a lot less people are going to be outside. And there was, because of the media, there was a little bit of a, of a hysteria. There was a little bit of concern that, like, if I actually go outside, I could get coronavirus in the air, which is really pretty absurd that you're going to get coronavirus in an outdoor environment. The transmission of a virus in an indoor environment is much greater than in, in an outdoor environment. They closed all the hiking trails to suggest that people would have the same amount of sun exposure in the midst of a social distancing quarantine shelter at home order is ludicrous. And so when this recent data came out showing that there's a pretty darn good correlation between low levels of vitamin D, and I'm going to share this data in a moment on the screen share, Low levels of vitamin D are significantly correlated. Again, this is epidemiology, but it's all we have. Low levels of vitamin D are significantly correlated with a more severe course of COVID-19. I thought, of course. I mean, duh. Like people with lower levels of vitamin D. And I want to get to your, the thing that you mentioned there, which is the nuance. Because after this data came out, everyone said, we should be taking vitamin D pills for the immune system. And I again, I did the... I did the smack my head, I did the SMH emoji, you know, I was like, what? no, you should be out in the sun because, and I'll you show can you also get, why. You can also get some vitamin D through your diet, correct? Like through, through uh, raw dairy and things like that, but it's, it's, it's maybe a little more difficult. Pretty limited. The reason dairy has vitamin D is because it's fortified with it. So there's a small amount of vitamin D in cod liver, 
but I really think the majority of vitamin D we're going to get naturally is going to be from the sun. Um, and, and the reason I think that's important is because so often when we're in the sun, we say, here I am getting my vitamin D. We never say, here I am getting my ultraviolet light because we've been told that ultraviolet light is bad for us. But I want to show, uh, I want to share some data from a talk that I gave in the past, really highlighting that the vitamin is ultraviolet light. The yeah, vitamin, you, it's, it's yeah, much you, beyond vitamin D. Can you clear that up for us? Because I get confused about the different lights. Like what's the light that's coming from the computer and coming from the phone? That's a, like a blue light? Yeah, that's a blue light. So actually, I'll show you. I'll show all of that in a moment here. Let me share the and, screen here. And it, blue blue light is, for most purposes, not good, right? Because it can lower your melatonin. It's good. It's good in the morning. It's good during the day, but it's not so good at night. So I'll go through all that here in a moment. So this is probably the most significant paper I've seen. Uh, it's on the screen share for people who are listening. Vitamin D insufficiency is prevalent in severe COVID-19. I believe it was published on April 29th or thereabouts, just in the last few days. And uh, for people that are watching, they defined vitamin D insufficiency uh, as less than, I believe, 30 nanograms per deciliter. I want to get that. Yep, 30 nanograms per milliliter. So vitamin D insufficiency was defined as a serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D as less than 30 nanograms per ml. And what they found the results were that among ICU subjects, so among patients in the ICU, 84.6 in this study, it was a small study, 84.6 had a vitamin D insufficiency versus four uh, on the floor. So 84.6 in the ICU had vitamin D deficiency versus 57% of those on the floor. Wow. They said strikingly 100% of ICU patients less than 75 years old had vitamin D insufficiency. Among these, 64.6 had critically low 25-hydroxy vitamin D, less than 20 nanograms per ml, and three had less than 10 nanograms per ml. They said um, they can calculate other scores, something called a sepsis-induced coagulopathy score, and they mention how many people in the ICU had these elevated sepsis scores. It's kind of an objective or it's a calculable metric for how severe it was. They say suppressed immune function was prevalent. 92.3% uh, had low lymphocytes, which is a type of uh, white blood cell, and nine were profoundly uh, lymphocytopenic, which means very low lymphocytes in the ICU of the people with vitamin D insufficiency. So very striking study. Again, small study, but pretty striking data to begin to correlate some of these, um, some of these concerns about vitamin D with coronavirus. The, I'm going to... Vitamin D is, a, um, is also considered like a hormone, correct? Vitamin D is a hormone. It's a steroid hormone, which means it uh, has a steroid backbone. And a hormone kind of means that it's a signaling molecule that moves throughout the body. Is it important to have other vitamins surrounding it? I recognize, like, obviously, like, getting it from the sun probably makes the most sense. But, like, you know, you kind of hear that sometimes dairy has, like, vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin K. I think these are fat-soluble. Like, does it make sense to... It, does it make sense to maybe even supplement this stuff it, it, at least a little bit, even if you are getting sun, could you potentially rev up your vitamin D count through, uh, you know, getting a, getting a vitamin and taking it with fat or something like that? Yes. 
Yes. So you'll notice that vitamin D, vitamin D is always packaged in fat. It's always in a pill that has fat in it because it's a fat soluble vitamin. And there's been a lot of research looking at the importance of balancing your vitamins A, D, E, and K, your fat soluble vitamins. Well, that gets to be kind of complex when you are taking supplements, but if you're eating real food, and especially if you're eating well-raised animal food, which is what's so interesting to me, this idea that if you're eating well-raised animal food, so many of these vitamins and minerals, in this case, the fat-soluble vitamins, are, are already balanced for you. They're already in the right ratios in your food. I talk about this in my book in detail. So, and, yeah. and, it's, and it's so hard to like figure out because you know, it could be coming from uh, it could be coming from magnesium or something else in your diet. There's just so much that we just still don't know, right? Like there, there could be a lot of things that it, like this is really uh, correlating to that, but, but, <laughs> but it's so hard to tell because uh, this guy eats uh, carbohydrates. This other guy doesn't eat carbohydrates. This person eats fruit. This person doesn't eat fruit, right? Like it's, it's hard to really tell, but if you're eating the correct foods, then you got most of it down. You don't need to really worry about it. I feel the same way. And I think that there's, that makes sense to me intuitively and it makes sense evolutionarily and it seems to, to recreate or mirror what we know anthropologically, um, that, that our ancestors did, did well enough to reproduce and that the anthropologic record would suggest that uh, our ancestors were pretty darn healthy and even perhaps more impressive is looking at currently living hunter-gatherers. If we look at those tribes of people if they make it past the age of 45, they have the same life expectancy as someone in Western society. So all of these previous narratives of short lifespans are really confounded by higher rates of infant mortality related to sepsis and infection or poisonings or uh, injury or poisonous animals. So that's a whole separate conversation that I've had before. I had that conversation in a previous podcast with James Clement. So this paper is next, the possible role of vitamin D in suppressing cytokine storm and associated mortality in COVID-19 patients. The title kind of says it all and connects the dots between those two papers. Is it possible that if you don't have vitamin D and perhaps other fat-soluble vitamins or other nutrients that you might be getting in animal foods or from the sun or from living a good lifestyle, that the immune system is a little bit disordered and this cytokine storm, which is the immune system overreacting, and we do tend to see this in patients with severe COVID-19, severe SARS-CoV-2-associated illness, you get this cytokine storm. You get the cytokines being imbalanced, and the immune system often overreacts. Is vitamin D involved in that? It appears so from this study. So they can find a link between vitamin D status and COVID-19 severity, which is the time-adjusted case mortality ratio. They call it the TCMR in the US, France, and the UK. And they talk about that in that paper. Now, Again, I want to point out that like the reason why these findings are, are most likely happening is because these people with these higher vitamin D levels are probably just people that are practicing uh, good general health practices more often than the people that have the lower vitamin D. And it's not just you know going through their cabinet and loading up on vitamin D or trying to drink a bunch of milk. Well, that's the question, right? That's the thing about epidemiology. We've seen this very often that vitamin D or vitamin D may be associated with something in a study, and I'll show that from these slides in a moment. But when we actually give people vitamin D, we don't see the same effects. So is it what they're doing in the sun? Is it the sun having more impact than vitamin D? Or is it that they're exercising in the sun? Or is it 
that the sun exposure and vitamin D is a proxy for a healthy lifestyle. So, and maybe even somebody that just handles stress better, maybe has better vitamin D levels. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to say, but again, like if you just are eating the right foods, getting the sleep, you know, I, I highly recommend everybody that's listening to this is, um, you know, stop thinking so much about exercise as being this like giant bear that you have to fight every single day. And it has to be this, this hour long, like battle of you against the weights. It doesn't, it doesn't really always have to be that way. If you want to get into that and you want to challenge yourself, that's awesome. But just, you know, get yourself outside, get on a walk or, or try to play. Like you don't have to walk. You could uh, ride a bike. You could throw a football around with a friend or family member just figure out a way to, to, to get outside and get in the sun. Maybe you, maybe you have a couple phone calls for the day. And maybe it's not hard for you just to use your cell phone and, and to uh, have a good microphone and, and hop on a walk. And, and next thing you know, you're chatting with somebody, especially if it's a friend. You might be talking to him for an hour. You might have just went on an hour-long walk rather than just a 10-minute walk. Yeah, I think the difference between people being in their homes and completely sedentary watching Netflix, as we're all being told to do right now, and, and doing moderate activity is enormous. Just a little bit of activity. It doesn't have to be kill yourself in the weight room every day. So this goes, I want to review some of this stuff, Mark. You were just asking about this. Um, this is the visible light spectrum. You were asking what ultraviolet light is. So this has to do with frequency up top here and wavelength. Uh, wavelength is the actual length of a light wave. People may know that light is a wave and a particle. It's one of these mysteries of the universe. But we can look at the wavelength of light. And in this small region here, right between 10 to the minus 6th and 10 to the minus 9th meters of wavelength, you have the visible spectrum of wavelength. And as you go smaller on your wavelength, more toward 10 to the minus 8th meters, you're getting into ultraviolet. As you go a little bit longer wavelength, you get into infrared. And people can see on this, if they're watching on YouTube, that if you keep going shorter and shorter wavelengths, you're getting from ultraviolet to X-ray, which we use to visualize uh, peoples with X-rays of our chest or our bones. And if you go even shorter, you'll get into what are called gamma rays. And then if you go longer and longer wavelengths, you'll get infrared, you'll get microwave radiation, you'll actually get radio waves, which are pretty long, and there's long radio waves. And we could also put other waves on here um, in terms of the EMF stuff as well. We won't do that right now. But you can see this small region right here is the visible spectrum that you go red, orange, yellow, blue, green, violet in terms of wavelengths. So what you were asking, Mark, is what is blue light? Well, blue light is right here, right? So we can look at wavelength here at the bottom. And again, this is now in nanometers. Um, and you can look at 400 to 700 nanometers is the visible spectrum. Red light is up here around 7,800. Blue light is down here in the 400 to 500 stuff. I've talked about this a little bit. I've been playing around with some blue light blocking glasses from Blue Blocks. And what's cool about those glasses is that they'll block all these blue and green wavelengths. You want to block all the way from blue to green in your blue light blocking glasses. You want to block up to this mid 500 nanometer range. So this is what blue light is, Mark. It's this 500, 400 to 500 nanometer wavelength light that's visible. What's ultraviolet? It's shorter wavelength light than what we can see with blue. And then you can see here 
within ultraviolet light, you can break down ultraviolet light from 400 nanometers to 100 nanometers, and you get UVA, UVB, and UVC. And so people may have heard of UVA and UVB with regard to tanning, and UVA is 400 nanometers to 350 nanometers, UVB 315 to 280, and then UVC is shorter than 280 nanometers. Now, what's so interesting for me with regard to the vitamin D conversation is this narrative, Mark, which you may have heard before. This is from the Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic question and answer. There's no such thing as a safe, healthy tan. They say, it's just exposure to ultraviolet or UV radiation damages your skin, whether the exposure comes from tanning beds or natural sunlight. There's no such thing as a safe, healthy tan, says the Mayo Clinic, which to me is ludicrous. They're basically telling us to forego all of our ancestral history and to never be in the sun. And I, this is what's so interesting for me about the vitamin D conversations, because as soon as people hear that there is an association between low vitamin D levels and severe coronavirus, everyone is going to run out and take vitamin D. And very few people are going to go in the sun because we've all been told this narrative from the Mayo Clinic, that ultraviolet light is bad for you no matter what. And that is malarkey in my opinion, and I'll show you why. Here's a picture. I want to also, I want to also Mark. add. Here's a picture yeah. of Mark. Hey, I'm looking great there. Uh, I want to also add that, um, and, and I've heard some people talk about this before. Um, I, I used to be like, I if I used to go into the sun, I used to burn very easily. And uh, I heard some people kind of tell me they, they think it might be because of my diet, but like I don't burn anymore. I mean, I, I'm sure I could burn. I'm sure I could, you know, intentionally be out in the sun for hours on end and I could, you know, burn my skin. But, um, man, it just doesn't happen the same way that it used to. And a lot of it has to do with just getting some sun exposure a as frequently as I can. Even I've even learned that even when the clouds are out and stuff like that, I still try to get some skin exposure to the outside because I still think the sun is so powerful that it's, it's probably coming through, uh, you know, some of the clouds anyway. But... Yeah, it's, it's much more difficult for me to get burnt these days. How about for yourself? Your, your skin uh, seems, seems fair. Uh, do you get burnt easily or has that changed for you at all? I've, I've always actually been kind of olive skin. Uh, I'm Mediterranean in ancestry and I will get burned, but I've heard this only if I go to like Hawaii and very serious locales. I was in Houston for the last week or so in some pretty intense sun, didn't get burned at all. I'm always in the sun in San Diego. I've heard this anecdotally over and over, and I want to talk about this as well. This is such a key point, people, that so often we are told that sun equals skin cancer, and just like everything else, there is so much nuance here that I want to unpack, and I think, like you're saying, it has to do with diet, and I want people to refer back to the conversation that I had with Kate Shanahan. I think it comes back to the oils that we're eating, and that when Mark Bell increases, improves his diet. He's eating less vegetable oil, less oxidized polyunsaturated fat. And if you really look at the data, there's some pretty intriguing stuff out there that I will show you guys in that slideshow. Again, I'll go back to that, but I want to highlight this one thing to really blow people's minds. So this is an article from uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association or the um, this is different. This is J-E-A-D-V, but this is skin cancer risk in outdoor workers. 
a European multi-center case control study. So the main cancer people worry about is melanoma. Now there is squamous and basal and actinic keratoses, but they looked for the association between outdoor work, which would be a lot of sun exposure, and all of these different skin cancers. And what they found was there was no association, no significant associations were found for melanoma. So for the worst skin cancer, the one with the most severe prognosis, this study and others have shown the exact same thing, that people who have chronic low-level sun exposure actually have a lower risk of melanoma, right? So melanoma, the worst skin cancer is probably not associated. Now, to be fair, in that study, people who worked outside more had a higher incidence of squamous and basal cell, yes. Where do we get squamous and basal cell from? The mainstream dermatologic narrative is that we get it from sun exposure, therefore we should never be exposed to the sun. This viewpoint doesn't make any sense because we know there are valuable things in the sun that we really probably can't uh, distill down into a pill. I think that's a false thing and I'll show you guys why in a moment. Now, but what we, I think that the hypothesis here, which I believe strongly, is that it's all about our diet. That if that the majority of people in this European study who saw in which they saw an association between sun exposure and squamous cell and basal cell cancer, cancers and actinic keratoses are going to be eating vegetable oil. And this interesting anecdote that I've heard over and over, the N is big on this anecdote, is that when we change our diet, when we remove vegetable oils, when we go to a carnivore diet or carnivore-ish or higher quality diet, people burn less. And I think it's because we're changing the vegetable oils. And if you think about it, what is every cell membrane of your skin cell made of? It's made of lipids. And if you have lipids in that membrane that are more susceptible to oxidation from the sun, then you are going to be more susceptible to burning and damaging DNA. We know this to be a fact. And I want to share just a few more studies on that. I'm getting, I'm getting deep here, Mark. I had uh, John, John Berardi on my podcast, um, Precision Nutrition. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but uh, John kind of shared the same thing. He, and, and, you know, he's somebody that's been studying this kind of stuff for years, but he didn't really know. Like he, he, just like yourself, he's just saying like, it's just something that he recognized and something that he noticed that he could, he could handle a lot more sunlight. And he actually, I think he had uh, like a tanning, he had a stand up like tanning thing that he would spend like maybe two, three minutes on the front, two, three minutes on the back. And he would uh, just hit that up every morning along with, uh, you know, just getting out in the sun and, and those types of things. But I found that to be really interesting when he said that. We were all like, huh? <laughs> uh, and, and, and a lot of us have been noticing that as well. So I, I don't know what the deal is with it, but it's definitely interesting. I think it's the vegetable oil in the cell membranes. It's polyunsaturated fats in the cell membranes. I think there's a lot of good evidence to suggest that. Just a few studies evaluation of the deleterious health effects of consumption of repeatedly heated vegetable oil. That's a very uh, interesting one for people to look at. There's others uh, we can mention here. Study in mice examines impact of reused cooking oil on breast cancer progression. There's pretty good evidence that increased uh, use of uh, vegetable oils is associated with uh, increased or higher incidence of cancers. Now, what about, babe, what about baby oil? <laughs> <laughs> only if you eat it. <laughs> Does only it really come from it. babies? It, is it really? <laughs> I can't tell you that. So this is a really interesting article. Um, sunlight has cardiovascular benefits independent of vitamin D. This is what I wanted to highlight for people, especially in light of this new coronavirus data. I think that sunlight has 
benefits independently of vitamin D. This is an opinion paper, but um, we know that individuals with high serum vitamin D levels have a reduced risk of hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and metabolic syndrome, yet multiple trial data show that oral vitamin D supplementation has no effect on these endpoints. So as you brought up, Mark, this is what's misleading about epidemiology. Is it vitamin D? Is it something else about the sun? Or is it the lifestyle of people who are in the sun? Because it's important to note that the, the supplementation of vitamin D, the interventional trials have failed to show benefit on hypertension, cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome. The two competing hypotheses here are there's other beneficial things in the sun, which we know about, endorphins, nitric oxide. The listener can refer back to the conversation I did with Malcolm Kendrick about nitric oxide and the endothelium and the things we're doing in the sun. But I fear, like I said, that everyone's just going to try and take vitamin D for coronavirus. And perhaps that's not the most efficacious thing. Is there something about the vitamin D that is made in our skin in the sun that's different? We know there is. The vitamin D that we take is cholecalciferol. Um, the vitamin D that we make in our skin is cholecalciferol sulfate. So one is, um, one is a fat-soluble vitamin, one is a water-soluble form. Mm. Here's just another thing to point this out. Vitamin D supplementation for the treatment of seasonal affective symptoms in healthcare professionals, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial, failed to demonstrate an effect of vitamin D on seasonal affective disorder symptoms. But you know what? When you put these people in the sun, they get way, way better, right? So many studies have shown this. The effect of vitamin D supplementation on skeletal, vascular, or cancer outcomes. And again, the same thing. Vitamin D supplementation does not alter the relative risk of any of these endpoints by 15% or more. But what we know is that there's an association. So what's going on? We're really trying to understand this. And I think that, um, that this is the, the key, that it's being in the sun. That's the real thing. And people should not fear the sun because of the cancers if they are eating a healthy diet. So that's really the takeaway here. I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole. Just one more relation between pre-diagnostic serum 25-hydroxyvitamin D level incidence of cancers we know that there's the higher your vitamin D, the lower your level of cancer. And the, 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 you know, the graphs are pretty striking here. The more vitamin D you have, the less your odds ratio of getting breast or colorectal cancer is. But probably like everything else, it's not going to be the vitamin D, the supplementation that's going to lead to that. This is the article or one of the articles. This one is from The Lancet that I was discussing with melanoma, the title of this one is, is there more than one road to melanoma? The thing that they state is paradoxically, outdoor workers have a decreased risk of melanoma. So thank you for indulging me on that, Mark, and letting me go down that rabbit hole. I really wanted to make all those points. I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's rare for somebody to have high vitamin D levels and just uh, be unhealthy. I think you could just take a whole bunch of vitamin D and not do anything else. But right, right, yeah. Traditionally yeah, you speaking- can, Yeah, you can get a good uh, blood reading. You can get your blood work done. If you, if you supplemented a lot of vitamin D, your vitamin D levels might be high, but it might not have the same impact in the body. Maybe it's similar to uh, ketones. Like, 
you know, you can take these ketones or you can, uh, you know, go through the process of getting yourself in ketosis. And that, that probably makes more sense than just trying to like pop a bunch of ketones. I couldn't agree. I totally agree with you. I think that even though we're talking about vitamin D supplementation, it is still a small portion of the population that supplements with vitamin D. So when we're looking at epidemiology, if we're seeing a high vitamin D, it's really most of the time suggesting that someone is in the sun, you know, in the sun rather than taking a vitamin D supplement. It's still pretty rare. Only a fraction of the population takes vitamin D supplements. So I think that that's, that's such a good point that it's, it's not, and I've said this before, we really can't distill it. We can't fake it. I love that you brought up ketones. I don't think taking ketone salts is going to be as beneficial or have the same effects as getting into ketosis. Perhaps it'll have some. We know beta-hydroxybutyrate has some epigenetic effects. Yes, it could be an HDAC inhibitor, a histone deacetylase inhibitor, but there's got to be a whole lot of physiology going on evolutionarily that correlates with fasting or periods of unsuccessful hunts, and that changes our whole physiology, turns on autophagy temporarily. We probably can't recreate that just by taking beta-hydroxybutyrate salts like, and this is completely analogous to taking vitamin D supplements, we're not going to recreate the benefits of the sun. So the answer is get in the sun, do the lifestyle. And I want to come back to something else you said earlier, because this will be a preview for people of an upcoming podcast that I have. On the counter behind me, I have a new continuous glucose monitor, and I'm going to be putting it on. I wore one for about nine days. Um, you mentioned earlier that, that, that um, you'd seen my diet in the past be mostly fat and protein. Well, the interesting experiments that I've been doing over the last few months have been including carbohydrates. And it's so funny because I think that the word carbs colloquially, colloquially gets uh, you know, associated with bad carbohydrates, but really carbs, carbohydrates, I'm including good carbohydrates in my diet, quote unquote, carbohydrates that are not junk food carbohydrates, they're not processed, but I've been exploring how my blood sugar reacts to those calculating the area under the curve with my continuous glucose monitor. This is something I think you'd really enjoy if you haven't done it. I got my continuous glucose monitor from NutriSense. I'm going to do a whole podcast talking about my CGM readings, but I've been feeling pretty darn good. My favorite carbohydrate now, do you want to guess what it is? Uh, is it a vegetable maybe? <laughs> no, it's not. It's honey. Sweet, sweet potato. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know that you like honey. You mentioned that before. Yeah, I really like honey, and I've been exploring different honeys uh, and, and finding that my body composition doesn't change. I feel pretty good. My weight didn't change a whole lot. My strength might have gotten a little bit better, but it's been interesting and kind of eye-opening for me to challenge my own paradigm and think, should I be in ketosis all the time? Maybe I should cycle in and out of ketosis. I did strict carnivore for over a year and a half, and I never had a carbohydrate. It's been kind of fun to think, well, let's just explore, see how I feel with sweet potato, how if I you feel remember, funny. If you remember a while back, I was like, uh, I, I think I mentioned to you, I was like, dude, jam yourself with like 400 grams of carbs just so you can see what it like feels like. And you're like, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> but it, it, it can make you feel amazing. I mean, there definitely is, uh, there's some really cool benefits to eating carbohydrates. But I think most of the time when talking about carbs, like if you and I are talking about like, hey man, people got to kick the carbs. We're, we're talking about like, you know, bull crap, uh, foods that you, you junk food. We're talking about junk food. We're talking about highly processed foods. We're not really saying that you can't eat a potato every day and be 
perfectly healthy and, and be in great shape or you can't eat a couple apples or some grapes. I mean, I've, I myself have included, uh, some fruit as of late. I've just made, I made some observations about myself. Like I'm kind of a pig, so I need to be careful <laughs> about like what foods I implement because I'll, I'll go a little haywire with them. I'll overeat like rice really, um, encourages me to eat a lot more. Yes. And so I, I really can't do rice, but somebody uh, who's thinner, who's trying to get bigger, rice might be the perfect thing for them because it's going to um, encourage them to eat more food. But so for me, I stick with like potatoes and, and fruit and things like that. And it, it's like a serving size, you know, I have just the one potato, like I'm allowed to have that. Things like that is, have been really helpful to me. And subjectively, I've noticed that different foods affect my satiety differently within the realm of carbohydrates. I actually did white rice for a little while and it was the same thing. There was no limit to the amount of white rice that I could eat. But after a few, you know, small spoons of honey, I think, oh, that was really good. And then I'm like, you know what? I've had enough. Like, I don't need any more honey right now. Again, this is just my subjective experience. But when I sort of allowed myself to be open-minded, I thought, oh, it's pretty good. Sweet potato is also pretty good for me. Um, I, don't, I don't get a ton of kind of that endless hunger or craving happening like I did with rice, but I do think people can explore it. And that's also what's cool about a continuous glucose monitor. And again, this is a teaser for all you guys for the upcoming CGM episode. I'll show you guys all my results and talk about the nuances of how to read a CGM and use a continuous glucose monitor. You can really see like, wow, I ate white rice and my blood sugar spiked 100 milligrams per deciliter and stayed elevated for a long amount of time. And you can carry, you can calculate the area under the curve of that blood sugar curve and compare it to something like honey and, and see a real difference. Or I believe in my case, that's, that's what I would see. So, and that's what I have seen in the past already. So pretty interesting stuff with the CGM to help people distinguish those. And I love that you point this out because people, sometimes I say, oh yeah, I'm eating I forget what I was saying I was eating, like sweet potato. They're like, does sweet potato have carbs? And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? <laughs> of course it has carbs. Sweet potato is not carbs. But like, oh, I see. Carbs is colloquial speak for junk food carbohydrates. I get it. We're not talking, we're not talking you know, detailed here because you have your thing, war on carbs. And I get it. And I love that because that's like war on junk food, but not necessarily war on you know, probably evolutionarily appropriate carbohydrates which will be different for every person. And that's where, again, that CGM comes in. So yeah, good something stuff. I've learned, something I've learned that, that might be helpful to some people is that it really does uh, help you to stay on a diet longer if you've got some things to look forward to. I know like we like meat a lot and we both practice some uh, fasting here and there or maybe not even like fasting, but we just allow ourselves to get hungry enough that we desire meat every single time or eggs or, or liver. Um, but for other people that are just so not used to dieting, like they just haven't really messed around with it before having a sweet potato at dinner with your steak, uh, can be amazing. Cause you could be kind of like pumped and looking forward to that all day. And maybe when you wake up and maybe, you know, maybe you exercise a little bit in the morning and maybe after your workout, uh, you eat something and you have some like honey with it or something like that, or, or some fruit. I think it just, it's, it's exciting. It's like, this is new. This is different. I get to try something else. So people that have tried the carnivore diet in the past, maybe you need to, you know, maybe this would be a good way to ease your way into it. Maybe say, all right, well, I'm allowed to have meat and I'm allowed to have uh, some fruit and I'm allowed to have a potato. 
and just keep it, just keep it super simple. Keep that list real short. I'm, you know, coming from a former fat guy, I have a lot of uh, issues with trying to figure out how, <laughs> how the heck can I eat less? Cause like I'm out here running I'm doing all kinds of stuff and I'm still like 230, 235 pounds. Like I, if I, uh, it's actually really funny because the last maybe couple days I've been running more and I gained weight and I'm like, oh my God, but it's because, you know, the energy balance that you have in your, your system is so amazing. Your human body is so fascinating that there's a lot of give and take that goes on. And so if you're going to take, and if I'm going to put, put out a lot of energy, the body's like, yo, like, you know, what's going on up there? Like, I don't like this. Why are you moving around so much? You better feed me. And it may not impact you that day, and it may not impact you the next day, but you'll find sometimes on the weekend, your nose down in a thing of Ben and Jerry's, and it might have been because you did a bunch of fasting that week, you did a bunch of stuff that was a little stressful to you, and next thing you know, boom, there you are going off of your plan again. Yeah, it's tricky. And you know, the diet you described there, meat, organs, fruit, and, and some sweet potatoes is pretty much tier one carnivore, like I describe in the book. I know... Hopefully, I think you said you're listening to the audio book. Yeah, and, freshman, sophomore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the tier one carnivore diet. And people, hopefully listeners have heard this. I'm writing a cookbook now, the Carnivore Code uh, cookbook. And that's going to be out later this year. And the cookbook is going to be mostly tier one carnivore. I want to include the least toxic plant foods to make it as wide as possible in terms of which, how many recipes we can make. So it's the, the cookbook is not just going to be meat. It's going to be meat and avocado and berries and sweet potato. A lot of the tier one foods, we're going to really expand on the plant toxicity spectrum as best we can to help people, um, you know, explore more of the variety, but still have some sense of the plant toxicity spectrum. So that's exciting for me. Was that the uh, freshman team, the JV team? (laughs) That's like the freshman team, right? I like it. I like it. I think that's great. I think people just need, they need an introduction to it. You know, yeah. in powerlifting, what we have in powerlifting, we have a bench only contest and that's inviting to people because people are like, yeah, I can bro out and I can lay down on a bench and I can, I can do that. And it gets a lot of people involved in powerlifting. They go to their first powerlifting competition. They still see other athletes squat and deadlift and they, they say to themselves, oh, you know what? I could probably do that someday or they see somebody that's a similar body weight or they see someone lift a similar weight that they think they can lift. And it's just, uh, it's inviting. And sometimes when we're talking about, you know, meat only, I think people get scared and like, what do I do? I just eat meat only the rest of my life. And it's like, no, just, just try to do it for a few days, you know, try like just eat meat for three days in a row and don't really eat anything else and just drink some water and dump some salt on your steak and just like, I don't know, just see how it feels. And if it feels pretty good, maybe continue it onward. Try it for a week, you know, and then uh, after the week is over, maybe, maybe you're like, hey, that, was, that wasn't great because I'm tired of steak. Maybe incorporate some fruit and incorporate a couple other things. But it's a great way to experiment. It's a great way to try out uh, something and, and to see how your body responds to it. Yeah. And the only caveat I'll add to that is that for some people, the fiber is problematic. And I talk about this all in the book. So if you guys want more information, check out the carnivore code. For some people, the fiber is problematic. So the removal of the fiber can be helpful. That's, I think, where a carnivore diet plus honey is unique because there's not really the same type of uh, plant fibers. But if you can tolerate plant fiber, having some fruit, having some sweet potato in your diet from time to time is probably great and a significant improvement 
I think, as I talk about in the book, the biggest offenders are things like nuts and seeds and grains and beans and the leafy greens, which we've talked about many times before. But man, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can people find more of your stuff? And then I'll ask you the radical question. Yeah, people can find me um, at Mark Smelly Bell. I have a, a YouTube channel. That's that's Mark Smelly Bell. I have uh, my Instagram is at Mark Smelly Bell as well as uh, Twitter. And then if you want to check out any of my slingshot products, I have knee sleeves and wrist wraps and apparel. I got all kinds of stuff. And that is uh, over at markbellslingshot.com. And then in addition to all that, I also have another website, which is called markbell.com. If you want to follow along uh, with my training methods, how I'm training, how I'm dieting. Um, there's also like Mark Bell University on there where I share videos about nutrition. I share videos uh, just teaching you some of the values and some of the things that I've learned over the years that have been helpful to me in my life, in my business, and uh, things of that nature. I think you guys would enjoy it. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it, man. And you've got your own podcast, which I'm going to be on next week, Mark Bell's Power Project. You might have said Oh, that. no. How'd you weasel your way onto, onto the podcast again? I twisted your arm. We, we did jujitsu and, you know. <laughs> and you came out victorious. Yeah, we, <laughs> we're going to have you on the show again. And uh, I'm super excited for that. And yeah, I've had a podcast for several years now. So if you want to check out uh, Mark Bell's Power Project, we're everywhere that you can find podcasts. All right, my man. So this is my favorite part of the podcast. What is the most radical thing that you have done recently? Most radical thing that I've done recently would be um, you know, I, I would say the most radical thing, you know, I would I guess I would define radicalness by uh, you know, probably doing something that you're just not used to, you know, doing something that you're and for me it's been running. And so I, I don't even know I got some weird ways of approaching training. I, I I don't I don't I'm not like a goal guy, like I'm not you know, I'm not like fixated on, I'm not a nutcase like where I'm fixated on these goals or I write them down and it's like, you got to meet these goals. Otherwise you're off the team. You know, I don't, I don't do that to myself, but, uh, I have been running here in Bodega Bay and there's a hill that I ran the other day and, um, I ran it the first time I ran it in, I think it was like six and a half minutes. The second time I ran it, it was like five and a half minutes. And then I just ran it again the other day and it was it was uh, about five minutes. I don't even know how far it is. It's just a hill, and it's just it's just uh, really really tough to for me to get up it because I, I don't I don't run uh, very very often or haven't ran in really the history of my life. I haven't really ran a whole lot except for when forced to for like football or something like that. But I'm enjoying myself, and then you know to make things worse, you know I'm always trying to figure out a way to get a little bit better at stuff all the time. I threw a 40 pound weight vest on and ran that hill. And so that's probably the most radical thing I've been doing um, over the last few weeks is just throwing this weight vest on, doing these run walks out here in Bodega Bay. But I want to encourage your listeners, um, anybody that listens to this, anybody that's really struggling to lose weight or to get uh, active with exercise. I started walking six years ago and I never stopped. I, I just, I walk multiple times pretty much every single day. Uh, start out small, start out, keep it simple. Your exercise needs to be simple. And I think that's something that people miss. I think people are like, I got to get back to the gym. I got to, I got to go in there and I got to, you know, superset this and I got to CrossFit or I got to power lift. And, and those things are cool. And that's great if that's something that, that fits you and suits you. 
but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, try to keep it simple because if it's simple, it can be repeatable. And if it's repeatable, then hopefully it will turn into a habit. And if you have that habit, then it doesn't matter what happens to the rest of the world. You have that habit ingrained in you forever. And you have, you have a new discipline. And when you have these disciplines, it doesn't matter if we're in quarantine. It doesn't matter what's going on. I know that Paul Saladino is going to get his exercise in. I know that you're going to get your nutrition in. I know that you're going to get your sunlight. I know that you're going to get your sleep because you have those disciplines. And there's a lot of people that have not enjoyed the success of having those disciplines yet. But when you can earn those disciplines, you earn freedom into so many other things. And it, like I mentioned earlier, you end up with full access to everything that your metabolism everything that your body is supposed to be able to do. And that is just a wonderful and beautiful thing to have to shield you away from all the uh, weird stuff that's, that's flowing around out there. I love it, man. The discipline is so important. Like, you know, channeling Jocko Willink, discipline is freedom. Amazing. A hundred percent. All right, brother. Thank you so much for coming on. I will see you soon. See you soon, buddy. Okay. What is up tribe people, tribesmen, tribeswomen, Thanks for listening to this podcast with Mark Bell. Hope you all enjoyed that. I get so many questions when I am out in the sun doing my Instagram lives in San Diego, soon to be Texas, lives in the sun. People say, what about skin cancer? And I really wanted to address many of those issues in this podcast, why it relates back to so many of the other podcasts I have done previously with regard to vegetable oils, increased skin cancer risk, to overall inflammation, insulin resistance, skin cancer risk, I think that what we are finding is that it's all connected, that it's all connected, and that mainstream medicine really doesn't get this, despite its best efforts. I think mainstream medicine wants to help humans, but just can't really connect the dots, and really didn't connect the dots well with coronavirus, doesn't connect the dots well with other things like skin cancer, and there's just too much fear. We're being told to fear being outside. We're being told to fear doing things that are fundamentally human, fundamentally human. And that is very scary. We cannot encapsulate all the benefits of ultraviolet light into a pill. We just can't. And to believe that we can is going to miss out on many things which will make us healthier, stronger, more robust humans. Don't believe it. So that's all the stuff that I presented in this podcast with regard to vegetable oils, with regard to inflammation, which, with regard to insulin resistance and sun. Don't fear the sun. Don't get burned. If you're fair-skinned, you're a very efficient sun harvester. You don't need to be out for very long. And your ancestors were from places where the sun wasn't very intense. If you're a fair-skinned person and you live in Texas, yeah, you're going to have to protect yourself a little bit from the sun. But yeah, really, you know, within reason, don't put sunscreen on all the time. What about the phthalates? What about the parabens? We know that problems uh, or potentially harmful, certainly harmful chemicals from sunscreen are excreted in urine and poop. You're absorbing them in your skin. If you want to use sunscreen, use something like Beaver, no affiliation, Beaver brand sunscreen, which does not have those bad things and is only using zinc. Again, no affiliation with them. Maybe I should get them to sponsor the podcast. But yeah, don't fear the sun. Don't fear the earth. Get out there, ground, be in the dirt. Thankfully, we can all be outside now more. But that is that. Thank you to my sponsors, White Oak Pastures this week and Ancestral Supplements. I've got some new exciting projects coming very soon that I can't wait to tell you all about. And check out my book, The Carnivore Code, www.thecarnivorecodebook.com. 
It is on Amazon for the next week. Get it now or pre-order the second edition. Support me one or both ways. Thank you so much for your support. We are moving the needle. This movement is going to change lives and improve so many people's lives in the future because I really believe strongly that we are being, we're being fed, to use a pun, bad information. There are so many out there either who are knowingly or unknowingly parroting bad information who don't understand where the nutrients should actually be coming from. We're being encouraged to eat junk food. We're being encouraged to shun animal foods. And we're being told that plant foods are completely benign. And these are not the case. These are simply just not the case. Plant foods are not entirely benign. Animal foods are incorrectly vilified. And including animal foods in our diet is hugely important now more than ever. Now more than ever, we need these foods in our diet. We should not believe the rhetoric, the incorrect science that has been done around these foods. It's all in my book, The Carnivore Code. I'm rambling. That's what I'm super passionate about, you all. I want your family and my family to be as healthy as possible. And that is why I do what I do. And I believe that the information that we are being fed by the mainstream media will make us all very sick in the long term and decrease our quality of life. So thank you for supporting me in this mission. You are all radical. Like I said, I hope to see you at White Oak Cella in October. I love you all. I will see you next week on the podcast. Next week's podcast should be the CGM episode, the Continuous Glucose Monitor episode. See you guys. Stay radical. Stay radical.